On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Our guest today is Dr. Annalisa Packham, Assistant Professor of Economics at Vanderbilt University. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here today. And we're going to talk about your forthcoming article in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, JPAM. This paper is joint with Dr. Jillian Carr of Purdue University. And the title of the paper is SNAP Schedules and Domestic Violence. The title's pretty self-explanatory, I think. You investigate how changes in the SNAP disbursement schedule affects the frequency and severity of domestic violence. And before we dig into the effects that you find, can you give us a little bit of an overview of how big of a problem is domestic violence in the United States? How prevalent is it? Where is it centered? And so on. Sure. That's a great question. So domestic violence is actually quite a pervasive problem in the U.S. So for example, domestic violence has been estimated to affect about 10 million people in the United States every year. And we also know that this problem disproportionately affects women. So about one in four women will experience domestic violence at some point in their lives. And importantly, that's really just if we're referring to intimate partner violence. So if we think about domestic violence also affecting kids, so in 2017, about 675,000 children had substantiated child maltreatment cases. And a quarter of these kids actually live in households that also have intimate partner violence. So it's a really important issue. And it's also important for economists to care about because we know that these instances of abuse fall disproportionately to women and children in high poverty households. So, for example, women living in households that earn less than $35,000 a year are four times more likely to be abused by a partner than their high-income peers. So we can think that like economic conditions and resource constraints really do play a large role in these types of crimes. Mm -hmm. And we can also think of this as a public health issue because nearly all healthcare professionals report that at some point in their career they've evaluated or treated a patient who's a victim of domestic violence. So this is a problem that I think is more pervasive than most Americans believe it is. Wow. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's troubling that it's concentrated in low-income households. And also, it sounds like it's, it's sort of a joint problem often for women and children in the same household. Absolutely. And I think that this is especially important for economists to care about, given the this could be a key indicator of kind of socioeconomic status and that women growing up in low-income households are more likely to also into adulthood be in low-income households. So it can kind of create a cycle of domestic violence. Right. And understanding the sources of these problems is critical to devising policies that stop them or reduce them. And before we jump into the details of your study, do you want to give us a quick overview of what you find? Yeah, absolutely. So before jumping into the you know key results, I just wanted to say that, so the point of the paper is to show what happens to households when a state 
goes from distributing food benefits all on the first day of the month when families are receiving other, say, social service programs or income from work to a day later in the month. And so what we find in the paper is that distributing these food benefits later in the month increases domestic abuse by 7% and increases child maltreatment by 30%. And we also find that benefit issuance timing tracks domestic abuse timing. So one kind of possible story to explain these results is that when benefits arrive in a household, it sparks conflict over who's going to use them or how to spend the benefits. And so the change in violent crimes across the course of the benefit month is tracking kind of when families are receiving these benefits. Right. And those benefits, we said that they're SNAP benefits. I know SNAP is the successor to the federal food stamps program. It's an in-kind transfer to needy households. Can you give us some, some background about the SNAP program specifically? Again, sort of how big is it? Who's receiving it? That sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And this is a program that's federally funded by, it's funded by the federal government, but is run through the states. So this program provides monthly food benefits for low-income households. So what happens is every month, eligible households receive food benefits that are loaded onto what we call an electronic benefits transfer card or an EBT card. So this card is a debit-like card that can be used at grocery stores, but you can only spend the money for food. So for example, if you go to Walmart and you buy a bunch of food, but you also buy, say, paper towels or food for your cat or cleaning supplies, the benefits can't be used for those things. And also importantly, these benefits are relatively small compared to something like cash transfer programs like TANF or housing benefits like Section 8. So on average, individuals get about $127 per person per month. And the program's really large. I think not a lot of people realize how large SNAP is. It serves about 41 million individuals every year. Wow. And that corresponds to one in seven Americans and one in four children. So SNAP is a large nutritional assistance program, and it really does serve a great proportion of the total number of people in the U.S., Yeah, one in seven is more common than I would have guessed. And you mentioned that SNAP, even though it's federally funded, it's really operated at the state level. And you're studying Chicago primarily in your study. And so Chicago's in Illinois. Illinois is running SNAP. And they made a state-level policy change that, for me, I thought was really sort of interesting and led to some unintended consequences or unexpected consequences. So what happened in Illinois with their SNAP schedule change? Right. So first, I just want to say we're focusing on Chicago in the paper for data reasons, even though the policy change is at the state level. Right. But, you know, the whole state was affected by the change. And what basically happened is that the state of Illinois chose to increase the number of SNAP issuance days. So what that means is that most families prior to this policy change were receiving their SNAP benefits loaded onto their card on the first of the month. But after the policy change in 2010, there were 12 potential benefit receipt days, and these were based on your case number. So a lot of states do this. It's known as benefit staggering. And essentially, the reasons that a state might choose to do this is to help out grocery store suppliers. So for example, in the case of Illinois, the state legislature argued that 
bottlenecking SNAP beneficiaries at the beginning of the month could hurt grocery stores with like stocking or staffing or crowding. Mm -hmm. So grocery stores might, for example, be really able to stock a lot of fresh food and then that food would be bought at the beginning of the month when everybody got their benefits, but not so much at the end of the month. So this was a way to kind of spread out during the month who's receiving those benefits. And importantly, I like to emphasize this as much as I can, that doesn't mean that households are then getting their benefits on the first and another day in the month. So they're just literally shifting their benefit day from the first to, say, the 21st of the month. Okay. So the primary benefit of this schedule change is for the grocery stores. Would there have been benefits for households, or or, or was that in the equation that policymakers were thinking about? So it's possible that policymakers were considering the fact that households might be receiving income from other sources and that, you know, giving them benefits later in the month could help them with their grocery shopping and things. But no documents I've seen from the legislature talk about benefits to the consumer. The only stuff that I've actually seen recorded is to help grocery stores. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because we're going to come back to this uh, the timing of other payments in a little bit. And so just to be clear, the timing of the benefits change, did the size of the benefits change or the formula for computing benefits change at all during this time? So there was actually no increase in benefit generosity. There was nothing done to the formula. So for example, if you were receiving $150 a month, that money used to come on the first. Now you get the $150 later in the month. So we don't see any increase in SNAP benefits or calculation of eligibility or anything like that. Okay. So so this isn't affecting families' pocketbooks. This is purely changing when they receive the money. It's just changing when they receive the money, although, you know, we can talk more about when you receive money does still affect your household budgeting decisions if it's coming at a different time than when you normally say go shopping or pay bills. Okay, right. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely circle back to that. So this policy happened in Illinois in February of 2010, and the goal here is to try to study how this policy change affected family behaviors, and domestic violence. And you use what's known as a regression discontinuity design. This is something some of our listeners might remember from some previous podcasts, including our very first podcast with Bridget Terry Long. Do you want to walk us through the intuition of the regression discontinuity design and how you tweak it a little bit to fit the context of your study? Yeah, sure. So the idea motivating this regression discontinuity design is that there's a sharp change in a measured outcome right at a particular cutoff. So in our context, we're talking about an abrupt change in the timing of benefits during a month for many families. So what we're going to do in our regression discontinuity approach is just ask whether there's a discontinuous change or jump in domestic crimes right after the policy change. So in this case, we're using time and we're looking at February 2010 as our cutoff. Okay. So that's kind of how we're identifying effects is just looking at that cutoff and seeing if the levels of crime changed or spiked right after that policy change. And then I want to also add that in our paper, we take that design a step further and we use what's called a difference in RD design. And so what that does is it's going to ask the question, are those changes in crime levels that we see at that cutoff 
Are they a recurring phenomenon? Which is kind of a, something that you want to think about if you're going to be looking at time. Mm-hmm. For example, February and March in Chicago have a very different temperature. Okay. And so we might wonder, do we just see a jump in domestic crimes every year? And it's not really because of the SNAP policy. It's just because it's March. Right. And so what this approach is going to allow us to do is just difference out average crime levels from previous years. So that allows us to think about whether our jump in crimes in 2010 is something that's unusual. And if that's an unusual occurrence, then it's probably a likely result of the policy change and not something else like weather. So in both cases, the estimation technique, so both the RD and the diff and RD, just detect whether there's a spike in crimes in the days just following the snap timing change. Gotcha. That's actually really intuitive, I think. So you're basically comparing before and after February of 2010. And then you're also going to look at, is that before and after February in 2010 different from the before and after of February in other years? Absolutely. And generally, you know, economists use that kind of methodology a lot, but they compare across geographies because we're in a situation where the whole city is treated at once. We're thinking about differencing out just previous years. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes total sense to me. And I think you explained it very intuitively. So knowing that the policy change isn't changing the size of the benefit, and it's just changing the timing, this does seem like a fairly minor change in, in the sense that your SNAP credit's coming a couple weeks later than it, that it would have come previously. And that makes me wonder sort of who's going to be affected by this policy change. We already talked at the opening about how you do find big effects of the policy change on domestic violence. And that got me thinking about who's responding to this policy change. So is it right to think that this is really affecting houses that were already at risk of experiencing domestic violence or already experiencing a smaller level of domestic violence? Yeah, so this is a really good point, and I'm glad that you brought this up because one of the biggest things that I want to explain about this paper is that you're absolutely right in that SNAP credits don't seem to be, first of all, that much on level. So only $127 a person really isn't that much maybe to most people listening to this podcast. And then secondly, this is an in-kind transfer. So it's not like you can just go to the ATM and cash out your SNAP benefits and then go use it on whatever you want. And so a lot of people might be asking, like, why do we even expect anything to change Mm -hmm. when you're just changing when people get SNAP benefits and you're not even increasing the generosity, right? And I think that's what's really important for people to understand is that for an average Illinois family that's receiving SNAP benefits, this is about 10% of their monthly income. And so simply changing the day of benefits can really change how households are able to budget. So we know that individuals are more likely to go grocery shopping and redeem these benefits right after receipt. Mm -hmm. And we also know that over half of all households exhaust their benefits in the first two weeks of receiving them. So just these small changes affect when people go grocery shopping and when during the month they're more likely to go hungry. And so these small changes still have really big impacts, we think, on household budgeting. And then to get at your question about 
well, are these just households that are more likely to commit domestic violence in the beginning? And is that why we might be picking out effects? And I think that's something that can be answered by the data. So as I mentioned in the beginning, we already know that more domestic crimes occur in low-income households. This is true in Chicago as well. Mm -hmm. And if we look at our effects, we can just see, are these larger in areas where we'd expect them to be? So in areas that have high levels of SNAP participation, where people are likely to be affected by a change in SNAP policy. Mm -hmm. And actually, you're absolutely right. We do see that our effects are much larger in these areas. And so we can think then that this policy change might be affecting households that are more likely to be experiencing high levels of domestic violence, or at least a propensity to you know, be on the margin of committing acts of domestic violence. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And speaking of the general effects, I find them pretty convincing and compelling. I think that your analysis absolutely identifies causal effects of this policy change. And then I wonder why. So can we talk a little bit about the mechanisms that you think are at play here? We talked a little bit about just changing the timing can throw off family schedules. But but more specifically, why would that schedule change and, and disruption to routine possibly lead to domestic violence? Yeah, so this is one of the most important questions that we would love to be able to address more in this paper because it matters so much for policy implications. So before I you know get into the nitty-gritty of this, I want to mention that we don't have data directly on households and how they respond to the change in benefit timing but we can test a few hypotheses and provide some evidence that we can maybe think about what's going on here within households. So one of the primary things that we think is going on here is that changing snap timing provides new opportunities for conflict. So what does that mean? Well, what we know is that a large majority of Americans receive income from work on the first of the month. And they might receive benefits from other programs if they're low income, programs like temporary assistance for needy families. These programs are often distributed on the first of the month as well. And we also know that most people pay bills like rent on the first of the month or utilities on the first of the month. And so what we're thinking here is that, look, abusive partners may potentially exert power over their victims when benefits or income in general arrive at the household. And so there might be potential disagreements about how or when or where to spend these SNAP benefits. And this can also potentially spill over to children that are living in the home as well, leading to more child maltreatment. So what I'm saying is that if income itself is presenting families with conflict because individuals are trying to decide how to spend the money, that just moving the benefits from the first of the month to, say, the 10th is now presenting the family with another day that mm -hmm. presents itself with an opportunity for conflict. So that's like one primary reason that we can't directly test in this paper, but we think by tracking the timing of violence through the month, we provided some evidence that this might be the case. Another possible explanation here, and one that's been studied in other papers, is that potentially SNAP and other benefits coincide with alcohol or drug consumption. So it's been documented by other folks that the timing of SNAP leads to changes in alcohol purchases. So when households receive benefits on the weekend, they're more likely to buy beer, even though these benefits can't be used for beer. 
So importantly, SNAP can only be used for food and not alcohol. So why would the SNAP timing affect alcohol purchases? Well, again, these benefits might be seen as fungible. So if people think that they feel rich when they get SNAP benefits, so for example, you've already done your grocery shopping for the month, the first week of the month, and now you get these benefits on the 10th, and you feel like, oh, wow, I have more money in my pocket now, you might be more likely to, say, buy something like alcohol or drugs. And so what we find in our data is that after the SNAP issuance dates change to be later in the month, we also find that drug arrests decrease on the first, but increase in the middle of the month when people are now getting benefits. Oh, wow. So we think that that also provides some evidence that recipients or their partners are using more drugs and alcohol right after benefit receipt, and that's also linked to violent behavior. So it could be one or both of these explanations that's driving the increase in violence. Either families just now have more opportunities to fight over how to spend the benefits, or it's that either the recipient or someone they live with is now using money to buy alcohol and drugs because they're not spending that money on food. Right. And so related to the first reason especially, I think the paper talks a little bit about sort of, if I recall correctly, that the policy was announced without much notice, but was abruptly announced. And families didn't have a time to plan or, you know, think about how they were going to react to this change. I totally agree with you. I I think it makes a lot of sense that there's an extra thing to argue about that can possibly escalate into domestic violence. And then I think the really interesting and policy relevant question then is, is that extra argument going to happen every month? for years to come. If that's true, then it it seems like this is a a real reason to keep the payments tied with the TANF payments on the first of the month. On the other hand, I can also imagine that after a couple months of this new regime, people sort of settle into a new routine and, and the domestic violence effects fade away over time. Are you able to speak to that at all with your data? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought this up. So I think you're absolutely right in that if these effects are persisting for years and years after the fact, that these violent crimes, you know, suggest exactly what you're saying, that we should just go back to having benefits on the first of the month. So we do think a lot about this in the paper. And in general, you know, our methodology zooms in and focuses on crimes happening just after the policy change. But we do care about this issue of, well, what happens two years from now? Right. Are the crimes still really happening at, a, at an increased rate? And so we also do look at longer effects in the paper. So in the paper, when we are looking at longer effects, we find that trends in domestic abuse and child maltreatment actually decrease about nine months after the policy change, and they end up at levels that we see around the 2009 levels and below. So what we are saying is that it does look like families are experiencing this transition period. So after you change the timing of benefits, you see increased violence, but that only lasts for about nine months, and then you see a decline. So what we care about in the paper is, like, does this change, increase violence for a short period of time, but then eventually households settle in. And so then you see a decrease for a lot longer. In that case, we might care about the trade-off of short-term increases in violence leading to a longer-term 
of peace within the households. And so what we also do is think about, well, what's happening in Chicago relative to other areas? And to do that, we bring in another data set. Okay. So we actually are able to compare domestic crimes in Chicago with domestic crimes in other U.S. cities. And we look at that even over a longer time horizon. So we look at five years and we see an effect that really backs up our main story which is that there's an increase in domestic crimes in Chicago in 2010, but there is some eventual fade out relative to other cities. Okay. And the reason that I'm glad you brought this up and the reason I think it's really important is because it can speak to how families react to just this small change in policy. So nine months is actually quite a long time for families to have to adjust to something as small as getting their benefits on a different day. And nine months of increased levels of violence can also be really detrimental to women and children. So Mm -hmm. policymakers should still care about this, even though it's short-lived, because if we're just talking about something as small as changing the timing of benefits, but it could have these large increases in violent crimes, even if they're only lasting a few months, um, you know, we still care about the victims there. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, it's it's not even clear if nine months... I, I think you could argue that nine months is, is a, a relatively short time. On the other hand, nine months of domestic violence is a very long time. So it seems like it, it does fade out a little bit. Uh, it might take longer than we would have hoped to fade out. And, and we think that that's mostly because families are just adjusting to the routine. That's right. I think you could argue that, you know, you're changing your shopping behavior, you're changing how you think about when you can spend money on different things. And Mm -hmm. if you're not able to buy food at the beginning of the month now, you know, trying to figure out if you need to spend some of your income from work instead Mm -hmm. might require, you know, a lot of adjustment and trial and error. Right. Let's shift gears for a minute and talk about the data you use. You mentioned that you don't have exact data linking SNAP receipt to violence or to crimes. But even so, the data is quite rich. And first, I'd like to talk about the violence data. How do you even measure domestic violence? And from a measurement standpoint, it seems like a lot of domestic violence might not be reported or might be underreported. So how do you deal with that in your study? And and where does the data come from? Right. So I'll start by answering your second question first, I think, which is that our main data set comes from the city of Chicago. This is a publicly available online data set. So anybody listening to this podcast right now could go online and download exactly what we have. So these data are case level data. They tell you a crime that the police recorded, what the primary description of a crime was, the date and time it occurred, where it happened, whether or not it led to arrest, which is going to be important for how I answer your first question, and really importantly for us, whether or not it was a crime between partners or ex-partners. And that's what's designated as a domestic crime. So this is flagged in the data. And so importantly, a lot of people think that domestic crime just means that it happened within a household, which is not true. So domestic crime just means it happened between folks that were or are romantically entangled. And so that's up to the police to report. Okay. But you're absolutely right in that domestic violence is one of the most underreported crimes in the U.S. And 
A lot of research that's been done previously uses survey data to get around this because even if you didn't choose to report your crime, you might report it in a survey. What we're doing here is I think even going beyond that and what we can see in the data is whether or not a crime ends in arrest. So why that's really important is that if a third party reports a domestic crime, even if the victim chooses not to press charges, we're going to see that crime in our data. Okay. And that's going to allow us to think more about how third party reporting or first party reporting is, is changing after the policy change. And so you're absolutely right in that we're not going to have a perfect number here of knowing exactly how many domestic crimes are happening over this time period. But this is kind of, as researchers, the best that we can do for now and is get this administrative data and right. hope that as many people are coming forward before and after so that we're not seeing just an arbitrary increase in crimes that's not reflected by a real increase in crimes. Right. So in other words, as long as the, the measurement problem is the same before and after the policy change, your analysis is going to cancel that out. That's right. So we're still going to pick up a causal effect here. And arguably for policy, we care a lot about how many people are underreporting. But you're absolutely right. We're not going to see a differential effect before and after the SNAP policy change. Okay. And now what's the issue with, because you're using publicly available crime data, that's not linked to SNAP receipts. And it's certainly not linked to the SNAP schedules of those uh, victims. So in the paper, you estimate what's known, and in economics, what's known as an ITT, intent to treat effect. How should we interpret these ITT estimates and what are they? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Obviously, as researchers, we would love to be able to know exactly, you know, if a victim experiences domestic violence, are they on SNAP and when are they receiving benefits? But unfortunately, we just don't have that information. So since our data does have information on crime, but not whether the victim was a SNAP recipient, what we're essentially doing is just measuring an average effect for the entire population. You're absolutely right. This is going to be an intent to treat effect. So what that means is that these estimates are essentially going to be a lower bound on SNAP recipients directly. So we think that the true effect is actually much larger if you're just going to zoom in and look at SNAP recipients. And what we try to do in the paper is get a better sense of the true estimates by looking at areas with high poverty and areas with high levels of SNAP participation. And we do see larger effects in these areas. So certainly our average effect of 7% is going to be kind of a conservative estimate of the true effect because we might think that there would be more noise from the data or that some of these effects might be coming from other households who aren't receiving SNAP. Okay. And coming full circle now, talking about those effects, let's recap what you find and and what you think the main results are. Domestic violence increased by about 7% and child maltreatment increased by about 30% as a result of this scheduling change. Can you help us put those numbers in context and add any other details or or main results that you think our listeners should take away from this? Sure. So what our estimates are suggesting is that the change in SNAP timing led to an additional nine cases of domestic violence per day or 
3400 per year across the city of Chicago. Wow. So that is going to include one additional case of child maltreatment per day. To some people, that actually might not sound like a large increase because you hear 30%. You might think, oh, well, that's going to be more than one crime per day. So arguably, you know, this is coming from a relatively low baseline, which as humans, we should be happy with. Right. But it's important to remember that, you know, domestic violence crimes are especially costly and they can have large impacts not only on the victims themselves, but also on their friends, their family members, their employers, and their communities. And so if we think about how much these crimes account for, one study says about $87,000 per assault. So, yeah. you know, even though nine cases per day might not sound like a lot, in terms of cost, that is very large. And so what I want to say is that we should care a lot about this, even though the effects are short-lived, even if they might not sound like they're that substantial, this is going to be pretty costly for society just for a simple change of moving someone's benefit day. Right. And, you know, you might think, well, maybe your estimates are much larger than, than, than other people's in the literature, but really the closest paper to ours that was published in 2016 in Economic Inquiry shows that intimate partner violence increased by up to 210% for cash transfer recipients in the first four days following disbursement, and it's driven by alcohol purchases. So for people that think that these are just small beans payments and in-kind transfers shouldn't really affect household behavior, you have to step into the shoes of a low-income individual who's really relying on these benefits to get them through the month. And so just something as small as changing the timing and increasing potentials for conflict in the household can have these ripple effects that last, you know, nine months. And I think it's it's just a really important takeaway for folks to understand that just small policy changes can have large impacts. Yeah, absolutely. And I encourage our listeners to, to check the paper out. I think the paper does a great job of reviewing what we know about household bargaining and 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 how these things uh, manifest into domestic violence. And in terms of the the small absolute numbers, I think m- most people would agree that even one additional case of child abuse is is one too many. Absolutely. And it's great that it's coming from a low base, but even that small increase can have really long lasting consequences for children. And the paper talks about that as well, but. I wanted to ask you now, is there anything you can say about what we know about the long-run consequences of child maltreatment for those children as they grow up? Yeah, so there's a large literature on this, and it's a issue that psychologists and sociologists and economists have cared about for a long time. We know that obviously there are direct impacts on their health and well-being, but children that are maltreated also grow up to have lower wages. We even know from a recent paper that is coming out in American Economic Review that just being in a classroom with a child that has been maltreated lowers lifetime wages for other children. So these consequences, like you said, are very long-lasting. They affect graduation rates, wages, and then they have spillover effects that I'm sure we haven't even fully captured as researchers yet. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I think your paper does a great job of, of reviewing that literature. So I hope our listeners take a chance to read the paper. As we start to wrap up, then what's the important policy implications here? What should policymakers at the state, 
and local level, at the federal level, what should we take away from this? Right. So what I do want to highlight here is first what I don't want people to take away from our research. And what I don't want people to take away here is that we should eliminate SNAP because violence is associated with benefit issuance. Yeah. But what I do want to say is that we need to be careful to implement changes without fully understanding how these households will react. So nowhere in the paper are we advocating then to get rid of SNAP completely because, you know, there is plenty of work showing that it does a lot to improve the health and well-being of individuals. So I just wanted to say that off the top. Yeah. But, you know, beyond that, our results really provide some new evidence that there can be adverse consequences when states implement staggered SNAP policies. So that being said, in previous work, Jillian and I have shown that staggering SNAP payments actually results in long-lasting reductions in theft, and in particular theft at grocery stores, because families are better able to kind of manage their food consumption through the month. But, you know, in this paper, we're showing that these policies also lead to these large short-run increases in domestic violence. And so what I think the results from our two existing studies are telling us is that state and local policymakers have these really important trade-offs between consumption smoothing but within household violence. And so when they're making decisions about the timing of government transfer payments, you know, we have to consider the costs and benefits and what's actually going on within the household. And the fact that the impacts that we find on domestic violence are short-lived, I think also provides some insight on how small changes in benefit timing can affect household budgets. Mm -hmm. And that should also be of concern for policymakers. So if we want to talk about practical implementation, One recommendation that I think stems from the results is that potentially we could split recipients' benefits into smaller payments, so maybe biweekly increments, which currently no state does. Mm -hmm. And that might be one way to eliminate both resource scarcity that people face at the end of the benefit month, and it could also reduce the incentive for violence if we think that people are less likely to fight over smaller amounts of food benefits. So that's something that I think policymakers could consider. But, you know, in no way, shape, or form do we want to suggest that because domestic violence can be tied to SNAP timing that we should eliminate the program. Yeah, that didn't even occur to me. So I'm I'm glad you you brought that up. This is absolutely not a reason to stop social safety net programs and and SNAP-type programs. You mentioned consumption smoothing, which is I should ask you, can you explain consumption smoothing for our readers and sort of how that's relevant in this discussion of SNAP payments? Sure. So I think consumption smoothing is pretty relevant for all of us. When we receive a paycheck, for example, say you get $1,000, you might be tempted to go and spend all that money all at once. But if you know your responsible adult brain turns on, you might say, no, I need to be more careful about how I spend that money through the month so that I can make sure I'm paying my bills and that I still have food to eat. And that if my friend invites me to go to the movies you know, on the 29th, that I've still have some money that I could go and do fun things. So consumption smoothing is basically just, do you spend about the same amount of money throughout the month? Right. But we know that in general, people are not that great at consumption smoothing. So most of us probably, when we see that paycheck hit the bank, immediately think, I'm rich, and we might tend to spend more money right away, even though we know we need to kind of save some for the rest of the month. Right. 
And so the idea of breaking the SNAP payment into several small payments, I think it's obvious how that would help people save and and smooth consumption over the course of the month. But I, I did wonder when you said that, isn't that potentially creating multiple opportunities to disagree or fight over how the money gets spent? And, and is there anything from your study or other research that says, or might help us understand like below a certain level of income or money that those fights are less likely to happen? So this is an important question because so far I don't know of any papers that show at what level of in-kind benefits do we reduce that incentive for violence? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I want to be careful to say here, it's possible that splitting into weekly payments could incentivize more conflict. If it's literally just any amount above zero creates that incentive. However, we could also imagine that if an abusive partner, say, received a check last week and got to buy what they wanted, maybe this week, if it's another small payment, there's less incentive for them to try to exert control over those resources. That's an empirical question. And it's important that you brought it up because now I can say this is a great avenue for any researchers out there that are looking to see more about what's happening in these households. Yeah, that's a great question for future research. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I've learned a lot about the SNAP system and this policy change from reading your paper and from talking to you. Are there any final thoughts that you didn't get a chance to mention that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think I'll just say that, look, we need to be careful when we're talking about states considering changes to these safety net programs. And just as researchers, be mindful to the burdens that these families might be facing. Mm -hmm. And I want to especially point this out in light of the recent pandemic, because we know that a lot of children have recently lost access to school meals and that SNAP does a good job of filling in these calorie gaps. Yeah. And they and the program really allows low-income families to have nutrition that they need and reduce food insecurity. So I just want to say that policymakers should especially be considering expanding SNAP right now in the wake of a lot of families having lost access to the food and nutrition they need. Agreed. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Our guest today has been Dr. Annalisa Packham of Vanderbilt University's Economics Department. Thanks, Annalisa, for joining us and sharing your important work. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.